Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's Yoma class. I decided to divide these five classes into spending, we'll call it three and a half of them, with an with Mishnayot from the first chapter that deal with the service of the Kohen Gadol, which is how we spend time um, thinking about Yom Kippur on Yom Kippur Day and the Torah reading from Parsha Achare Mot and the Avodah service. And then at least one Mishnah from the eighth chapter of Yom Yoma, which as I described is like Masachet Psachim, where the first chapters deal with really the ancient ritual and text, and it's the last chapter that deals with the contemporaneous observance of the holiday. So, um, I want to look at one more commentary with you on the Mishnah we studied last time and then jump to the Mishnah from chapter 8. So the Mishnah we studied last time was the third Mishnah in the first chapter. I want to read through the Mishnah itself again quickly, otherwise the comment won't make sense. Masrulos kenin mizikne beitin. They would send to him, the Kohen Gadol, in his period of incarceration, seven days leading up to Yom Kippur, elders from the elders of the Beit Din. We talked about how these are not just any elders, but chosen elders. The Korin Lefanav Beseder Hayom, they would read in front of him the order of the day, the liturgy of the day, <coughs> the Omrim Lo, and they would say to him, and we discussed this, the, the, the tone of voice with which you would say this would suggest whether or not they're being taunting or deferential. Ishi Chohen Gadol, my Lord, my, my man, the high priest, Kara Ata you read this material out loud in your mouth. Shema Shachachta, maybe you forgot it. Maybe you didn't learn it. Erev Yom Kippurim Shachrit, so the morning of Erev Yom Kippur, Ma'amidino Tobishar Mizrach, they would place him in the eastern gate. Uma'avirin Lefanav, they would have come before him parim, bulls, oxen, ve'elim, and rams, ukvasim, and sheep. Kadei she'hei makir v'ragil ba'avodah. And we discussed many different ways you could read this section, so that he would be aware of and recognize and be be re-regulated to the worship he was supposed to do. Okay, so we spoke about the, the real politic of why the Kohen Gadol might need this revision of his material. It could be that he got this post because of his monetary contributions not be, and, and his, um, his yichas, his lineage, not because he had earned it with his smarts. But I want to look at, um, yes, yeah, so we actually did not read this one, the Yachin. The Yachin is the, uh, Mishnah, uh, the commentary in the Mishnah by the Rabbi Yisrael Lifshitz uh, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. He also says that the reason why the high priest would have to have this read in front of him is because during the Second Temple, there were high priests that were appointed only because of what they contributed financially to the kingdom. But I want to go to um, this commentary of the Yachim. On the phrase, so that he would become yet more familiar and regular um, in, his, in the worship service. When he would see these animals come before him, he would look closely at them. Which of them are appropriate for this sacrifice? And which would be appropriate for that sacrifice? And that he would know this and that was the way he would do his worship. On some level, as we discussed last week, this is a little pitiful. It's pitiful to have the high priest, who might have been the high priest the previous year and the previous year and the previous year, have to say, this is a goat. Actually, not a goat. This is a sheep. This is a bull. This is a, a ram. And that's what they're used for. And this might, again, be a, a Pharisaic, rabbinic taunting of the high priest who's supposed to have all the knowledge of the world, basically saying, unless he gets this primer, unless he gets this you know, you know, cliff note, 
he will not know how to do the most important ritual on the Jewish calendar. Or, there's another way of looking at it. I would say that in the modern rabbinate, particularly in the frenzy leading up to the logistics of the high holidays um, and the staffing of the high holidays and the kind of like the writing of the sermons, which is an important part of the American Jewish experience, but it's not, it's not a critical part of the holiday, if that makes sense, right? There's nothing in Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur texts that suggests one must prepare and then listen to an 18 to 24-minute sermon. It's actually the case that you can be distracted from the core issues, which are what's supposed to happen that day ritually, what's supposed to happen that day spiritually. And I wish on some level that I had built into my rabbinet and my calendar some time, like the high priest got, where some of my mentors and scholars would come and, and work with me and sit with me and remind me about how everything is supposed to be not logistically in the synagogue, not vis-a-vis how Temple Beth Am was supposed to orchestrate their holidays, but what are the core features of, of, of this holiday and this observance. So even as you read the Yachin's commentary on the Kohen Gadol, you can read it both in a, in, a, in a somewhat pitying way towards a high priest who might have needed this review and a laudatory way. It's a good thing to review before you get to a holiday. In fact, uh, elsewhere the Gemara says that you're supposed to start being sho'el umeshiv, to ask questions and receive answers and to investigate the meaning of the holiday 30 days before every holiday, every Jew, not just a Kohen Gadol, before, 30 days before Pesach, you get up from your nap on Purim, you're supposed to start studying the laws of Pesach so that it's not just like a shopping list, but a review of what's really supposed to be happening in the holiday. We could all learn from that. Last comment on <clears throat> this mission before we go to the next one. Ikar Tos Vayomtov, the Tos Vayomtov, Rabbi Yomtov Lippmann Heller, who was a um, Polish rabbi in the 16th century, wrote a very classic commentary on the Mishnah. It appears in two different forms, the Ikar Tosfodyontov, the essential piece of that commentary, and then just Tosfodyontov. Interesting little tidbit. One, he was one of the um, rabbis in the old country in Poland who, when he first came across the animal turkey, that was the bird that was brought over from the New World, uh, he had a very stringent view on it because remember that with fowl in the Torah, there aren't criteria that determine whether or not it's kosher, like fish and, and um, mammals, but just a list. And so most people, as you know, said, hey, this looks like a chicken, but with a weird neck. So we'll call it a chicken and it's kosher. But the Tosva Yomtov, Rabbi Yomtov Lubin Heller, um, and a few others said, it's not on the list. It's not on the list of birds that we're supposed to eat. So we'd rather be stringent and be careful. And he made turkey treif. He determined that it was a not a treif bird. And there are certain descendants of Rabbi Yomtov Lubin Heller to this day who hold a tradition that Turkey is treif. And a last little interesting tidbit is that I am a direct descendant of Rabbi Yom Tov Lippmann Heller. And I did eat turkey when I was a, not a vegetarian, even though I was considering holding back out of deference to my ancestor. Okay, so um, on the word parim, the oxen, and that list of three animals that the high priest is supposed to be looking at, the oxen and the, um, the rams and the sheep. And I asked, as we were going through questions last week, is there anything missing from this list? And I think it was Norm who said, goat, the sa'ir, is missing from the list. And the sa'ir is the key animal to be sacrificed on Yom Kippur by the high priest, right? You had one that was sacrificed for the sins of the people and then uh, one that was sent off into Azazel, right, down into the, into the valley. So that 
he's not paying attention to, he doesn't need review on the Sa'ir. Look what the Toso Yom Tov says. Aval Si'irin Lo. It doesn't mention that he should spend extra time um, investigating all of the details of the goat sacrifice. Because that's the one that represents all of the sins of the very people whom he's there to represent. It could be that his mind would get weakened. is kind of a rabbinic phrase for a depression. A depression that in some places in the Talmud leads to death. Right? A weakening of one's mind, not in terms of mental acuity, but in terms of emotional well-being. It's actually a beautiful image that he really took it so seriously that he was there to represent people. That if he had another reminder of part of the reason why he was there, which is to atone for the many, 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 many sins of these many people, it would just make him be sad and depressed. Why depressed and sad? Maybe he would think that by thinking about all these sins, he might wonder if God wouldn't forgive them, or it would just be that overwhelm, right? Do you remember that movie, Bruce Almighty, where Jim Carrey... Uh, you know, it gets turned into God for a day with Morgan Freeman being God. And it's in the early age of the internet. And all of a sudden his, I don't know, his like, um, what's that, whatever early email program, Udor or something starts flooding with messages because it's all of the prayers of people around the world who are coming to him, right? Uh, as God, because the notion that God hears the prayers and he's, he's just overwhelmed by it, right? He imagines that it's very easy to be God, and he sees in that moment that to actually be a recipient of all those prayers is an overwhelm, as it were. So this is a similar kind of overwhelm that just doesn't want to be thinking too much about the gravity of his role until he actually has to do it. But then the Tosu Yonza says, if, you, if that's the rationale for why Sa'ir is not mentioned, you could ask the question, why is the par mentioned? Because the par is the bull that is brought on his sacrifice, sorry, on his sin, and the sins of the Kohani, but how about the bull that represents his own shortcomings, and his brothers to Kohanim, you might make the argument he wouldn't want to become depressed about that either, so why should he spend any time looking into that animal, Um, because those animals come for those sins, uh, if there is a person, a man, amongst the, the high priests, the eat be milta that has within him some some schmutz, some sin, it's good that he become aware of it, and he will do tshuva on it. So what an interesting turn. The priest and the high priests don't want to be mentioned, don't want to be reminded in this preparatory week of the sins of the people that they are to represent because they want to be as optimistic. And, uh, you know, like you talk, the, this, this notion of the prosecutor and the defense attorney uh, for all of us on, on Yom Kippur, they want to be the, the defense attorney. They want to really make the case before God that this nation deserves atonement. So we don't want to over, overspend time focusing on the animal that represents their sins, but our own sins. Yeah, we've got, we got to be reminded of it. So it's an image, it's, it's a very different image of the high priest that we had before of like a kind of a bumbling um, appointee whose parents, you know, um, uh, gilded his way into the position and doesn't know much. Now we have an empathic, um, connected servant of the people who is both humble enough to be okay to be reminded of his own sins by looking at the animal that he's going to bring as atonement for it because maybe it'll allow him to do tshuva, but doesn't want to overly think about the sins of the people he's representing. He wants to think of them as good and complete and as worthy 
of the atonement he's going for. So I thought that was a really wonderful commentary. Okay, before we read the next Mishnah, which is not the next Mishnah, it's the first Mishnah of chapter eight, let me pause and see if there are any uh, questions or comments on this. Um, because I'm sharing the screen, I can't see all your faces at once. So if you can digitally raise your hand, I'll see if you have anything. We can also just go forward, going once, going twice. Okay, so now Mishnah Chet, um, chapter Chet, Mishnah Aleph. Again, almost exactly like Psachim, the last tractate of the Mish- last chapter of the tractate starts from where you would imagine the tractate might begin, which is what is this holiday? And what is this holiday from the perspective of the people who are observing it in the time of the Mishnah, right? The Mishnah is, some of this material may have existed before the destruction of the Second Temple, but it's a text that's codified in approximately the year 210, 220 for a community already living 150 years past the destruction of the Temple. For them, Yom Kippur is not a Sa'ir or a Para or, a, or an Ayol. Yom Kippur is what you and I know of as Yom Kippur, but they don't get till till the 8th chapter. Okay. Yom Kippurim Asur On Yom Kippur, you are prohibited from eating and drinking. I put that as as, as a singular because um, they're thought of as one of five. Uberichitza, you're prohibited from washing. Ubesicha, and from anointing yourself. This is mostly anointing yourself with oil. Most people do not think it's like a, a perfumed anointing, but an, an, an oil anointing. Uven sandal, and wearing of sandal probably specifically referring to a leather shoe, which was a sign of great comfort and even luxury back then. The the great rabbinic euphemism of the use of the bed and the kind of use of the bed that a married couple should be engaged in, sexual intercourse. And by the way, as we're reading this, I want you to think of, as we did last time, questions you would ask on this text. Be Rashi on this text as it were. What? Like some of this material is going to be very normative to you because you live a version of this Yom Kippur. What questions do you have on the text, on the language of the text? A king and a bride are permitted to wash their faces on Yom Kippur. A chaya, which most people understand, he referred to a woman who's recently given birth, although some people understand it as the, um, uh, the midwife who's there to help the woman give birth, is permitted to wear shoes on Yom Kippur. All of this, divrei Rabbi Eliezer. And the question is, what's the all of this? Is it Rabbi Eliezer who's permitting all the way from the king and the bride and the, um, um, and the birth, mother, birth mother or the midwife, or just this last one? Right? Because it's not clear where his permission begins. The hachachamim osrim. And the stages prohibit, right? So you could read it that everyone agrees, sages and Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer that the king and the bride can wash their face. And the machloket, the disagreement, is on whether or not the birthing mother will go with that, is allowed to wear sandals. Or we can understand that the machloket is wider, that the, that the chachamim, the sages, prohibit all leniencies where Rabbi Eliezer is in, uh, in favor of those two. So let's pause here. Questions or I'll, I'll accept comments, but I'm most interested in questions you have on the mission before we look at commentary. Anyone? Okay. So I can, I can go straight to commentary, but usually this group likes to ask things, but that's okay. Okay. So let's look at um, the Bartonora. Bartonora is the 16th century, uh, 16th century? I may have that century wrong. Italian commentator and classic commentator in the Mishnah. And usually the Bartonora is what we call a Pashtan. He's, he, he, he does to Mishnah what Rashi tries to do to the Torah, which is to 
tell you it to, to um, elucidate it for you, right? He's not giving you layered commentary. He's trying to help clarify a few things you might be confused about in the text, right? So one question you might be asked is, why any leniencies? Why should a king get to wash his face? And why should a bride get to wash her face? So he tells you, Hamelech tzarich sheyitra'eh na'eh. A king's got to look good. Remember that in the Torah, there is this notion that public servants um, have to represent the grandeur of the office that they are in. So sections of the Torah that are sometimes uncomfortable for us to read in the 21st century say, suggesting that a high priest cannot be physically deformed. I don't even think a priest can be physically deformed because the idea is that if you're there at the temple to do the, to do the worship service, you don't want the, the petitioners who are there to be distracted by your disfigurement, even though you didn't do anything to earn it. You want them to be focusing on the grandeur and the beauty of the ritual. So same thing with a king. A king has got to look good. And by the way, I think kings have always wanted to look good. There have been many kings who had complexes about why they didn't. According to the, the, the rabbinic idea, a king has to look good. Dichtiv, as it says um, in, uh, in, the, in Isaiah, Melech b'yofyo techazena inecha. Your eyes should look upon a king in his yofi, in his beauty. And so the high priest, sorry, the king is allowed to wash his face and get rid of some of that oil and detritus that we have to live with when we wake up on Yom Kippur. Um, probably next week we'll get to why anyone would have had, even Rabbi Eliezer, would have had the um, kind of the chutzpah to say, yeah, I know these are prohibited on Yom Kippur, but you're allowed to do it, right? It, there's got to be an under reason, not just explaining why these people deserve the leniency, but why we should be lenient at all on Yom Kippur, when most of us are more stringent with these rituals than we are with other rituals during the year. The hakala, the bride, Sricha Noi, she also needs to be beautiful. This is very, not only heteronormative, but, you know, at least mildly misogynistic, suggesting that a woman needs to be pretty and a husband does not need to be uh, handsome. But in that era, this was just a normative way of thinking about things. She needed to have beauty, in order that, that she would become yet more beloved upon and by her husband. Right? There's something archaically and misogynistically romantic about this, right? that we permit a violation of Yom Kippur, so that a husband and wife who can't even have sex on this day, if they're newly married, so that he continues to think of her as beautiful. I understand what's problematic about what I'm saying, but I also want you to look beyond what's problematic and say that the rabbis are trying to do their own version of maintaining marital enjoyment of one another in an era where the roles were very uh, unequal, and especially on a day where they couldn't act out their marital enjoyment of each other because intercourse, and someone say even um, intimate touching, is prohibited. Then he says, and this is true for all 30 days. So if your wedding took place any day leading up is an interesting comment because many weddings in the rabbinic era took place during the month of Elul. Elul was thought to be the month of romance. On Tuba'av, 15th day of Av, which is 15 days before Elul, is when Shidduchs were made, according to the rabbis. And in Elul, usually a year later, they would get married. Elul is thought of as a cute reminder of the phrase from Shir HaShirim, Ani Ledodi Vedodi Li, the letters of the month of Elul are an anagram for I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, which meant it was very common for there to be newlyweds in the month of Elul. And if you got married in, after the 10th day of Elul, you were a newlywed still, a, a bride still on Yom Kippur, and you were allowed to wash your face, kind of a version of the fact that uh, in some communities, including when we got married, you were considered newlyweds for the full year, and then you put honey on your challah and not salt. 
Um, just very quickly, we'll finish these three, and then I have to uh, do a hard stop. The hachaya, the uh, Bartonura says that the chaya here is referring to the one who is giving birth, not the one who is midwiving the birth. Tin ol, why should she be allowed to wear sandals, mipne hatsina, in case it's cold? It doesn't really answer why that and only that person is allowed to do it, but this idea that someone who's giving birth should be as comfortable as possible, and um, and you're allowed to, uh, if your feet are cold, you ever been in, in an unheated Israeli house in the winter with a stone floor? It is colder than Vermont in the winter somehow. So she's allowed to wear uh, leather sandals that warm you up. And the Bartonur says, the Rei Rabbi Eliezer, these are the words Rabbi, El- Rabbi Eliezer, Akul Hukai. This refers to all of these leniencies, not just the last one. Amelach, the Chala, on the king, the bride, and the, um, the birthing woman, which means the machloket with the rabbis is a bigger machloket, not a smaller one, which means the rabbis are not only um, um, very limitedly uh, stringent, but they're very widely stringent. And then the Bartonura gives us a little cheat sheet because he knows the Gemara, the Halakha, Rabbi Eliezer. If you're reading the Mishnah and don't know the Talmud, you want to know what the rule is, who won this machloket on Yom Kippur, the lenient rule one, which meant that the practical halacha, the king and the bride could wash their face and the uh, birthing mother could wear sandals. When we meet next time, we'll go more into why these five um, prohibitions and why any of these rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer in particular, had the chutzpah to suggest that, yeah, but some of them you don't have to do if you're in this category. And uh, we'll end there. We'll begin there next time. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.